Welcome to the Sustained Nutrition Podcast, Chewing the Fat. Join your hosts, Joe and James, as they share everything they know about mindset, training, nutrition, and self-development, helping you improve with every episode. Now, here are your hosts, Joe and James. Then nutrition chewing the fat. We've got a brand new intro, but that's totally irrelevant right now. <laughs> so we're joined by Elliot Reed, special guest, who's going to be telling us all about osteopathy. Did I say that right? You did. It's a pleasure to meet you both. Nailed it. So Elliot, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, what you do, how you help people. My name is Elliot Reed. I'm the founder of the Revitalized Health and Fitness Clinic. We've helped over 10,000 people become pain-free, uh, mentally well, and physically fit. Ultimately, we take uh, a bit of time to understand exactly what our individual patients' goals are, and we help them to get there, whether that's overcoming pain, lifestyle issues. Uh, like I said to, to, to James and Joe, uh, quite a lot of crossover in our work. Can you give us an idiot's guide or idiot's description of what osteopathy is or you know kind of what you do and how you help people yeah so osteopathy is actually a philosophy so we can view it as a way of thinking about health or a way of thinking about the individuals in front of us so ultimately we're pain clinicians we help people to become pain-free however our philosophy is based on founding principles so one which is probably the most important is that the individual is a union of mind body and spirit so that really you know written 150 years ago just means a biopsychosocial model so we understand that if someone is in pain contributing factors could be coming from their mind their social situation um, or their body so give you an example one of the leading causes of pain in britain at the moment is depression so if you're treating someone who has chronic pain long-standing pain that's not getting better and you don't inquire as to how they're feeling in themselves then you are probably going to be missing a, a pretty big trick so the key is that we view the whole individual another principle is the rule of the arteries supreme this was written 150 years ago for, before the discovery of vitamins and minerals it just means that if that individual has physiological health they're more likely to feel better and they're less likely to be in pain and then there's another principle which is structure governs function which is probably more applicable to when osteopathy evolved out of more of an allopathic or more of a surgical setting that is less um, applicable now because we now realize that anatomical differences are quite poor predictors of pain whereas lifestyle is a massive predisposition for pain variety of injuries that we see pain being a very small picture might be tendonitis sciatica nerve palsies but uh, or sprained joints for example but this is always put into the context of the individual's health so pain is a very small picture we put that within the context of the big picture which is who the person is where they want to be and what's getting in the way last one treat treatment methods that we use because obviously a lot of people know about the treatment methods that osteopaths use we do use massage we do use manipulation acupuncture as well often but that's a very small part of what we do the main thing is the philosophy and the strategy behind how we communicate with our patients to get them to where they want to be perfect thank you very much and how does that differ with like a traditional western approach that people would be used to yeah so one of a great quote by andrew taylor still who's the founder of osteopathy is find health anyone can find disease now what allopathic medicine is more traditionally focused on is finding disease. Where is the cancer? Where is the bacteria? Where is the inflammation? How do we treat it? 
But one, sorry, another principle um, of osteopathy is that the, which is actually really important. I, sh I shouldn't have missed this one out. Is that the body has its own medicine chest. So if the body is in a good situation for health, the body should be able to fix itself. So going towards health, basically taking the body's own mechanisms to promote health and going forward is our priority. But there's a lot of crossover, you know. Yes, absolutely. If someone comes in with neuropathic pain, so pain coming from nerves, without a doubt, we're going to try and use their bodily mechanisms to reduce inflammation, increase whole foods, increase movement, to floss the nerve, to build good relationships with movement, to calm them so they're not uh, as anxious about what is happening, obviously treatment to soothe the pain. However, what we also want to prioritize is their experience of their recovery. So if they're going to recover in two months anyway, what is the best experience of their recovery? And using medication like amitriptyline, gabapentin, pregabalin, which we can advise our doctors, uh, their doctors to, um, to prescribe is always really beneficial. We use a lot of orthopedic diagnostic tests so we can pick up on injuries and diagnose injuries more accurately than say the average uh, GP, general practitioner. So we can then feed back to the GP and say, I think this would really help on that patient's path to recovery. So in summary, allopathic focuses on the disease. We focus on the whole person, moving them towards health, but focusing on the whole person also means it has to be incredibly patient-centered. We need to understand what that individual's goals are and how they want to get there as well. Sounds a little bit like the positive psychology movement in regards to traditional psychology, looking at what's wrong with people and how to make them right, whereas the positive psychology movement is looking at the people who have optimal mental health and then how do you mirror that? Co completely. And what is very, very similar between osteopathy and psychotherapy or, or psychology is they both come from an allopathic movement. So they both come from a Western medicine, they both come from Western medicine. Andrew Taylor still, um, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were all medical doctors before they started to change their profession or started to become more niche in their profession. And you start to see the language change. So it, like you mentioned, it becomes much more about actualization that individual fully actualizing their potential dependent on what they view their potential to be rather than I am the hero of this story. I tell you what is the ideal and I'm going to move you towards the ideal. It's more, what is your ideal? How do we get there together? I will guide you there as best as I can. So it's a much more, well, I suppose you're addressing the causes as opposed to the symptoms, which is obviously going to give much longer results. Yeah, and but then the other thing is you need permission for that, right? Because just like yourselves, we have plenty of patients where, so I'll give you an example, uh, Colin et al. Uh, did a fantastic study in 2018 where they did a literature review on what are the predispositions, pre predispositions for pain. And they coined the term pseudo-injury, an injury or pain that comes out of no mechanical cause. And they found it had a huge correlation to diet, diets which induce obesity. But if someone comes in, unless... I can, unless I can gain permission to speak with them about their diet, I'm probably not going to go there. And I can only give them the information that I know in a non-judgmental, compassionate way. But it comes back to you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. If that, in, that individual might have, in their opinion, a, a fantastic life experience of drinking at the weekends, socializing with their friends, eating foods which are high processed, um, I can only give them information and if they want to go down the path to change, we'll do that, but I can't force them. 
definitely, yeah, people have to be ready to change, don't they? Or willing to change, or even be aware of change. Absolutely, completely. I think also, you know, um, Danny Daniel Miller, who's now he's an osteopath, but he's also a health psychologist. He presented some uh, CPD, some continual professional development at the clinic, and he actually provided some information which was really interesting. When they researched, they researched when individuals start to get better and when they have interactions with their health consultants, right? Whether that's an osteopath, physio, nutritionist, psychologist, etc. And you tend to find that they dip. And just before, just before they meet their health consultant, they start to rise just a little bit. And then they meet the health consultant. So then that gives the impression that the health consultant isn't the one who creates that change. The patient creates the change. And the health consultant then continues to help them up and guide them out of that depressive period, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it, it makes sense. When you, we think about the, the demographic of people that we work with then, how would you, or what, do, what are the, your, what is your experience of their struggles? So if we're looking at women between the ages of 35 to 55, perimenopausal and beyond, what are the, the common issues that you see? Yeah, well, I think the, the common issues would probably relate to the UK. So the issues that we, we as a country face, which is that we are very time poor, we are we're extremely uh, pushed financially and with our time as well. So it would probably be a case of uh, not having the time to dedicate to health, to movement, to good food, um, not prioritizing it, um, high stress levels, poor sleep. Um, those would probably be the main the main factors. I think as well, um, women by by nature tend to be quite selfless. So they're very likely to prioritize other people in their, in their life before them. So for a lot of our patients, educating, our, educating them that the more robust and the healthier they are, the more that they can actually fulfill their desires of helping other people. It's, it's a long, it can be a long process. It can take a few times, but I think they, they really value that change when they, can, when they can make it happen. I don't know, if, does, that answer, does that answer your question, Joe? Yeah, it's it's an ongoing battle that you know I think we face as well. That idea of self care being selfish, you know, taking time away from others or investing in themselves when they won't think twice about it. And Joe always raises a good point, like say, would you be happy seeing these qualities in you know your daughter or your son or another loved one, or would you tell them like you need to stop that shit and look after yourself first? Because we do sometimes a personality test with a lot of our clients, they come back as obligers. So it is, you know, he's trying to convince people like everyone wins when you win, you know, everyone benefits from you being the fittest, healthiest, happiest version of yourself. And I, I think that's such a nice tool, you know, of, of being able to take a bird, essentially take a bird's eye perspective of yourself by transferring your attention to someone else or your own internal chatter. Would you talk to someone else like that? Do you think that's appropriate for someone that you love to act or speak like that? And I think it's a real nice way to bring it back to that individual uh, a little bit of sense, a little bit of focus. I think that obliger tendency also ties in with a graph that you mentioned in that once people start working with a professional, the people are open to help. They then have that sense of duty in order to then get that external validation. You know, we find as soon as people start to log their food, they start eating better because there is that external pressure. You know, we are essentially voices and faces hundreds if not thousands of miles away you can't do anything to change people but that that 
perception, the way that people are thinking changes. And I guess that's what, what you're talking about in the graph as well. Yeah, and then just out of interest, how do you then start to internalise that? How do you start to um, make that shift where rather than individuals trying to satisfy an app or trying to satisfy you as their consultant, do you, is, do you have any um, techniques or strategies to try and shift that so they are then trying to, it's more of an internal process, um, which is they're reaching internal satisfaction rather than external validation? Yeah, absolutely. I think to have full transparency as well, when we first started, we were we branded ourselves as accountability coaches because it was the idea of when you are accountable to a coach who knows what they're doing, we can teach you the skills that you need. And then over time, it became clear that ironically wasn't the most sustainable way of being because people had to pay their money and they had to not necessarily... Uh... It, it wasn't necessarily what I would class as like the high point, it didn't really match our value system. If it's a sustainable process, then accountability has to be a relatively small part of it. How interesting. Yeah. So the way that that we approach it now is trying to change the way that people process thought. And I think that uh, one of the, the, the key obstacles that I see in the fat loss industry is they focus very much. uh, When you spoke about it earlier, made me think of it is people focus on the physical side of things. What all the things that you can track, all those different data points with regards to how much do you sleep, how much you're eating, what the calories, how many calories you're burning, how many steps you're doing, all those pieces. But what underlies that is the way that you think. You know, you can have two people in a room, getting them to eat the same, train the same, sleep the same, and then you release them into the real world, and one of them will continue and one of them won't. Well, why is that? Because you haven't addressed the underlying causes behind why they're doing those pieces. And that, and then, just to, I appreciate this is a podcast about you, but I'm just going to treat myself. No, no, I I like like this. Another 60 seconds is that people don't have that under, people play fat loss whack-a-mole. Oh, you're tired? Here's a sleep protocol. Oh, you're stressed? Do some meditation. But actually, once you understand that your actions are rooted in thought, and obviously that takes a certain level of awareness to apply it across different areas. But over the course, so there's a lady who I'm working with now who, is towards the end of her six-month process. And she's a very astute lady. So she's taken on this faster than a lot of people would. So that's why we'd look at like a six-month minimum with coaching. But she is now going through other more acute pressures in her life and is applying the knowledge with a little bit of guidance. But it's at that point now where she can see how this will apply to different areas of her life. And I think 100%. now, you know, we, we've done this for a long time and it's only the last 18 months where I've gotten to a point where I think, you know, we are really delivering on the sustainable promise. And it, yeah, that's just how long it's, I'm sure there are other coaches who picked it up faster. There's an awful lot of coaches who don't deal with any of this stuff. And so I think it's, I think it's so difficult to, cause you go through so much training to be that specialist in the room and you have to then, I think, groove the specialism so much to the point where you can just become a human being in the room and you can speak human to human. But, um, the one thing that that came to mind um, when we speak to patients about diet and they're playing diet whack-a-mole in the context of their fitness or weight loss or, or health or pain, it gives them a lot of freedom and a lot of understanding when we say that these different dietary modalities are really just based on behavior modification. You doing intermittent fasting just means you have less time to eat the same number of calories or you uh, cutting one food group out means that statistically you're less likely to consume as many calories and prior, trying to prioritize something which is best for them and prioritizing prioritizing health at the same time 
um, can be the biggest pillar for us when working with patients. We'll, we'll bring it back to you now, Elliot. <laughs> Joe, that is monologue. Only kidding, Joe. Um, so when would, when should someone see an osteopath over, say, like a chiropractor or a physiotherapist or you know, a general practitioner? When, when would they be the kind of the key times to go, right, I need to see an osteo? When you're in pain. Uh, or if you want to improve your physical function, or even if you want to improve your attitude towards pain and your physical function. So we see a lot of patients who have really crippling levels of health anxiety, where they're essentially scared of their bodies. They're scared of what might happen to their bodies, they're scared of this information which is coming to their bodies. Um, but also, you just want to make sure that the osteopath that you see is really patient-centered. And you'll be able to see that they're patient-centered, which is when they give you the most space in the room. So rather than them telling you what you should be doing, they guide you. And they guide you based on the information that they're giving you. They give you as they empower you with information. And then they ask you, what would you prefer to do today? Which direction did you want to go into? So patient-centered, evidence-based, the, these are terms I would look for. One issue that I have seen with more evidence-based practitioners is sometimes they do lose the humanity in the conversation. So rather than it being patient-centered and asking what the patient wants to do, sometimes they can say, no, this is the ideal protocol for this injury, so therefore we're going to do it. So it's, it's a real fine balance. Um, but yeah, to summarize, see an osteopath when you're in pain, when you're struggling, even if you have concerns about your health. Um, we study for four years. We have a very good or well, we have a very good understanding of pain very good understanding of mechanics a very good understanding of pain psychology by the time that we graduate but then we're also because we're primary care practitioners we can also understand you navigating your general health so the interactions between uh, medication the interaction between yourself and your surgeon yourself and um, other pain clinicians as well so we're pretty well placed to, to help you if you're in pain or if you just have any general physical complaints I've got a question about the, the psychology of pain, if, if that's okay, because one of the, the pieces that has come up for me kind of two or three times in the past week with different different people at different ages, different lengths, time spans of pain, but people who are in the process of trying to fix their pain on a physical level. So people who are either booked into seeing physios or currently working with physios or people who are having physical pain through the back of uh, perimenopausal symptoms. So ultimately they are having fleeting or delayed success with regards to managing their pain. How do you help those people from a psychology standpoint? And how, how, what would you do there? So the first thing once again is, is to inform. So the best way to look at pain is as a, as a defense mechanism. That's essentially what it is. There is very, very little, little anatomical correlation to pain. So for example, did a study uh, asked a hundred radiologists, gave them a thousand MRIs. Can you please predict who's in pain and who's not? And they could do so to zero correlation. Pain is a defense mechanism. It kicks in to, to defend you, not necessarily after you've actually hurt yourself. So then how do we look at pain as a defense mechanism? Well, when individuals have chronic pain, that's their nervous system trying a little bit too hard to protect them. You might think of this as, for example, like I mentioned, pain is a defense mechanism. It can often kick in before you structurally damage something. You might say that's akin to your parking sensors on your car. Parking sensors are great because they stop you damaging your, damaging your car, but what if your parking sensors kick in when you're 10 meters away from something? You're not really gonna get anywhere anywhere quick. So 
what we actually want to do then is we want to try and calm down that defense mechanism. Now, we can do that with desensitization. We can treat. We can improve mind-body connection. That's with self-mobilizations, where they're creating a novel experience of movement. For example, it's painful for me to flex my right hip. Okay, what about if you sit down and touch your toes? Oh, no, I can do that fine. So you can see how this defense mechanism is now very specific to certain maps of movement and not others. We can use those maps of movement to create new maps of movement which override the others. But then also what we want to do is build capacity. Building capacity would be the equivalent of, imagine once again if we use uh, another defense mechanism, fear. Imagine you're walking down a dark alley and you see a hooded figure ahead of you. How am I going to make you uh, less afraid of that individual? Now, I could either turn the light on so or shine light. You realize it's just a small child. That could be information informing you, enlightening you. I could make the threat smaller. That could be desensitization. Or I could make you three times bigger. And now you're definitely not scared. And that is you building your own capacity of strength and robustness, your ability to overcome the physical situations that used to cause you pain and no longer now no longer do cause you pain. Now, that's a very basic way of looking at it. A nice uh, technique or nice framework that we use at the clinic is also acceptance commitment therapy. So that's a really nice way where someone can now become the observer of their pain. It's the equivalent of rather than being in a burning building, you're taking an individual 100 meters away from the burning building and looking at it from afar. So research has shown that those individuals who are able to do that, it's also akin to psychological flexibility, are far less, they, they can experience exactly the same level of pain. However, it doesn't stop them as much. Pain is then, it's an accompanying sensation. It's, an accompany, it's almost like having a bad friend or it's like having a, so uh, using uh, Winston Churchill's term, uh, a big black dog, where rather than it's not on your back anymore, it's just walking with you side by side. You're aware of it, but it's not overcoming you. I think that stuff's fascinating. I'm going to treat myself to another 60-second monologue, James, so get, get the timer ready. Uh, time <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard the story of Tyler Hamilton, who was Lance Armstrong's number two in, in the 90s, and he, no. two separate occasions. One time, I think he fell and broke his wrist, and the other time he broke his collarbone, and he wore down multiple teeth to the roots because he was gritting his teeth so hard. And I think that you, when you hear stuff like that, you think, how can people do it? How is it possible? And you have people who are subconsciously able to distance themselves from that pain. And I think that the average man or woman in the street, I mean, I listen to that and think that's absolutely disgusting. How, does, how, is that, how is that possible? But what you say there makes perfect sense that people can, and this is something that normal people can do. If you, man and woman on the street, you've got a bad back. If you can tap into this and practice it, repeat it, and it's, it's making the, the Herculean the, more manageable. But one, uh, that's, a, that's a great example. And I, I think, and I'm going to look more into that because that's fascinating. One other fascinating example, I don't know if you've seen, I think he was a Tibetan monk who doused himself with oil and set himself alight on, in protest, right? So he was able to sit in meditation and essentially burn to death, right, without moving. In fact, he, he, I think he fell backwards on purpose rather than, falling forward as a moment of his last kind of uh, action, right? So psychologists actually looked at these individual people who meditate and they thought going into the hypothesis was that they must experience less pain than the average person. 
what they actually found is they experienced more pain because they're looking at it. But because they're observing it, the observer can't be what is seen. It has to, the camera can't be the image. You have two different things going on there. So because then you have a void between them, the observer is observing the pain. The observer can't be corrupted or affected by the pain. And I'm sure, you know, that, um, what did you say his name was, Tyler? Tyler Hamilton. So he's, Tyler uh, Hamilton. Yeah. I'll send you, I'll send you the, a link to this. Yeah, book. please. It's an please. Interesting yeah. But I'm sure he was, he was with it. He was observing it. There's, he, he might have tried to put it to the back of his head, realised it became even stronger. He's got no, no option but to treat pain as his companion and keep going. Now, this is, um, I, I would like most of our, the vast majority of our patients don't have to do this because, <laughs> they're, because they're, their pain is uh, just like most instances of pain. It's amendable. It's a journey that ends. There are, however, some patients who are just incredibly admirable people. They're just, they're fantastic human beings who, despite being given this hand to play, play it as best as they can. They play this poor hand as best as they can. They're in pain constantly and they live incredibly fulfilling lives and that they're inspiring to us. What are some of the, uh, I suppose, main causes of pain that you see? Is it physiological or is it more of the psychological stuff? Like I'm familiar with like the body keeps the score or holds the score yeah it's either love it past trauma or well it's both you know because we we only we as human beings we experience everything through the mind there's there's nothing that we don't experience which doesn't come through the mind right so what's it five thousand four thousand year old quote from um hermes trismegismus or um Thoth in ancient egypt is all is mind everything that you experience is mind conquer mind you conquer the world but uh, when we come back from this, let's look at, once again, pain as a defense mechanism. So if um, pain is a defense mechanism, we have to ask what is more likely to cause the mind and the nervous system to want to defend itself. So poor mental health, absolutely. Poor sleep, you're more irritable, you're more anxious when you don't have good sleep. Depression, everything is low. Everything, you feel everything more when, when, when you're depressed. Poor diet. If you have uh, an absence of antioxidants or plant foods, whole plant foods in your diet, um, you are robbing yourself antioxidants, which will help to reduce inflammation. And then you're, if, you're more con if you're consuming more processed foods, then inflammation will go up. So that can be one thing your body has to defend itself against it. If you don't have good capacity for movement, you're more fragile. Your body has to defend you against it. Um, but the other thing, would be for a lot of individuals, you know, training this time of year because it's it's January and individuals training for the London Marathon at the moment, a in an introduction of too sudden uh, a, a, an increase in load can also be a predisposition for injury. If you go for a long car journey, you're not used to it. You can be more likely to experience pain. Um, if you start training at the gym too hard without doing some good foundations, more likely to experience pain. So these are the, some of the, the most common ones that we see. But it's also really, really important that people realize that sometimes you just get unlucky. Sometimes you're doing everything right and you might load something just right or it's just a bad day. Your nervous system kicks in to try and defend you and you experience pain. And the most important question is not necessarily how you got here, it's how you get out of the situation. So what can, is there anything that people could do on their own to kind of alleviate these things or help themselves? I know we've obviously listed a ton of stuff like about sleep and 
nutrition and exercise, what what would be kind of your top three things? So first, the first one is is like I would if we if we if we summarize good health as having a good support system, feeling happy in yourself, uh, feeling that you're working on something worth working towards, consuming a good amount of whole foods, um, and exercising on a regular basis, doing something that you enjoy. So let's say that these are the, the foundations for for good health. And I would say that just writing down all of these things or writing down mind, physical capacity, diet, sleep, social life, and just writing down what, rating each one out of 10 and anything which is below a five, asking what could increase that to, a, to an eight or seven or an eight and then making movements towards that. Holistically, that's probably the best thing you, you could do. You would have cut out a lot of noise. And then after that, you can just, you know, if you like, you could contact an osteopath. You're more than welcome to, to contact me anytime if, you, if you've got any questions, if you're listening to this, even if you just drop me an email. Um, but then we can start to focus on the specifics, which is um, if you are in pain and you've taken care of all of this, what do we need to work on now? I think that's so interesting. That's you, you was as James, you you reeled off the the piece in response to James's question. It's we're that's kind of our foundations, the the four pillars that we have of sustain of food, exercise, lifestyle, and mindset. And I think that the way that, that we look at things is that if there if things come up, which inevitably they do, where we can't help people, whether again, physical pain, psychological pain, whether that be trauma, physical or mental, is then we refer out. And so actually, I think that if there are people listening to this and they've tried that, then actually you you or another osteopath of their choosing would be a, a good part of call. Yeah, not quite. We do online consultations as well. So you're, you're all welcome to, to book in. Um, and then, you know, after the online consultation, if you feel like you need more face-to-face and we'll just refer you to an osteopath who is near you. Um, but yeah, just, just go towards health. That is the best um, advice that I can give you and understanding what is between you and your best health. Uh, what are you trying to defend yourself against? Are you trying to defend yourself against change? Or are you trying to defend yourself against taking care of yourself, prioritizing yourself? Are you defending yourself against the anxiety of what might happen or the anxiety of going into a new situation that could actually better you in the long run, but you're too scared to do it at the moment? These are all questions that we have, these are all questions that we explore with our patients. Yeah, love the holistic approach to it. Like you said, it, if something is lacking, how do you bring that up? How do you improve that? And then every, it's going to cascade down, is it? It's going to snowball. If you're getting stronger and you're eating better, you're sleeping better, and, you know, you're working on your your mental health and your mindset. Like just everything is going to improve. So it's it's a really great way of looking at it. And I yeah. think it comes down to sorry, sorry, Joe. After you, mate. No go. I think it comes down to how we experience life. We don't experience life as a formula or mechanically we don't experience life segmentally we have a whole experience of life how we how the the interaction that we have in the morning on the way to work can affect how we eat during the day and how we move during the day and how we speak to our colleagues so we experience life holistically so it makes sense that we the remedy should be holistic i think the people that look for the the immediate fix the the one pill that I can take or the the one food that I can eat or the one magic exercise are the people who 
are lacking in so much. The 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 five things that you said, the four pillars that we have, it's uh, I guess it. I don't know. I'd be interested to get your thoughts. Is that a, is that a byproduct of modern society? Is that human nature? Yeah. Was... Well, I think that because of the foundations of medicine are so mechanical and cause and effect, it changes and it's had an effect on how we view the body. So, for example, and we have this quite a bit. People come in and they're like, "Can you fix this for me, please?" And they've been in pain for like ten years. And you know it, that would make sense if you were a car. You know, if you're a car, I would take one bit out, I'd add one bit in. That's a mechanical solution, right? But the fact that we, we share about 70% of our DNA with trees indicates that we should probably be nurturing you rather than trying to fix you. We should probably try and grow new tissue and change these wire, the, the wiring that's going on, change your experience of what's going on. So taking a mechanical perspective and making it much more of an organic, holistic perspective, I think is a... A really important thing to do. And to be honest, I think that if more people had this approach to their life, they'd probably be happier. Because, you know, we even have, like you mentioned, you know, a pill for an ill, but that could also be a car or a house to make you happy. It could be, I need to look this way to be happy. We have a very, very uh, mechanical, formulaic view of the solution when our experience of life is anything but that. Yeah, and I think people, you know, they externalize the solution and they externalize the process. So I've got to, I've got to be accountable. Well, that's not going to work either. They're just the same as the outside world isn't going to fix your problems, or, or the one pill is not going to undo the all the contributing factors that have led to this this ailment that you're struggling with, whether that be pain or, well, yeah, I guess it's all pain, isn't it? That whether that be um, being overweight is is a pain, is it is an inconvenience? Being unhappy is a pain, it's, I guess. It's such a broad topic, isn't it? I think that we're so used to, I'm, you know, when you talk of pain, I think physical pain, and then actually the, the contributing factors are so broad. That, I think, is such a good way of looking at it, that it is all pain. You know, if, you, if you've got, for example, great patient who we, we helped massively, his, his hip pain started, uh, no mechanical onset, but his wife had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and that's when his hip pain started. So... That grief is pain. The hit is pain. His future is painful. Him not able to walk with his wife, that's painful, you know? So like you mentioned, it's all pain. How do we turn this chaos into order? How do we find a solution when the future seems so dim? Well, yes. And on that, and on that bright note, we're... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't... I don't um claiming that me and Joe are osteos because we've done zero training. <laughs> we share a similar approach, I suppose. We've accidentally fallen into a very similar approach of, okay, let's not just change what you're eating for the short term. Let's just say, okay, right, take all your carbs out, like you said, or, you know, start skipping breakfast. It's like, let's look at why you're eating. And if you're constantly eating, you're comfort eating because you're really, really sad or really upset or, you know, we say not, we're not treating depression, but then less work on your mindset, less get you a little bit happier. And, you know, it's like, as Joe said, it's one of our four pillars is the self success. What can we, what have we got control of? What can we be proactive that's going to help you make better decisions? Well, we're going to look at your sleep. We're going to look at how you manage stress. It's, yeah, it, it, for the long term results, it is that. And I, I think the reason why there is so many commonalities is because there's an underlying truth to, to what we're doing. Right now, if we go back in time to 100 
years ago, the most common reasons why you would enter the NHS, also 70 years ago, the, the, the most common reasons why you would see your doctor is because you would have had chemical poisoning, you would have fallen from a great height, you would have had a workplace accident. All these things need immediate attention and the power massively has to be in the hands of the medical practitioner. Now, however, most of us are going to be passing prematurely or struggling with our health because of what we have done to ourselves and the interaction between our environment and our bodies. And that needs a completely different philosophy and a completely different approach. And I think the reason why there are commonalities is because there is a common truth to that approach. Right then, Elliot, million-dollar question, maybe billion-dollar question. Tomorrow you're going to be Prime Minister of the UK. What's the, what's the first change that you make? Uh, so <laughs> the first change... Oh, this is a big question. Okay. A lot of people aren't going to like what I'm going to say, but that's okay. Oh, now, now I'm interested. The first thing I would do is, is increase tax. I would um, make sure that there is more money going into uh, the hands and the situation of the, sorry, the organizations which educate people. I would, and also I would make it illegal for people to own multiple homes i don't think homes should be commoditized just like i don't think food should be commoditized right um in schools i would educate very early on on the importance of movement the importance of eating whole foods the importance of building a high quality relationship with yourself understanding that the world is a mirror what you put out is what you receive if you judge, if you harm, you will receive it by judging and harming yourself. So that's that's one of the, the, the first things I would do. Um, what else would I do? Tax, diet, exercise. I think that could do a lot. I'll leave it there. Very good answer. It's a big judges. <laughs> But yeah, I, 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 education is such a big part of it. And, you know, we're probably like definitely second, maybe third generation of people who can't cook, you know, because they're so used to convenience. And I, and I get it. And even going back to what you said about a pill for an ill, like I understand why that's attractive. It's like, if I take this Valium, then I'm good, you know, or, you know, I've spoken to people like, oh, no, not, I'm not good. Doctor's going to increase my Valium. Hopefully that'll fix it. Like, that's not going to fix it. Like, you know, all, I, I, people must get bored of us saying this, like, can you get better sleep? Can you get outside? Can you do some activity? You know, can you just clean up your diet a little bit? Not Nothing crazy. Like, that's going to have more positive impact. But as a nation, we can't be trusted to do that. And that's, I'm going to, I'm going to treat myself to a little monologue now, Joe. You'll see PTs posting, going like, oh, when was the government saying us that we need to exercise or do this and blah, blah, or doctors. Imagine a doctor giving you a meal plan. Like, you can't be trusted to do it. You know, the government do say, like, eat less, move more, five a day, all these things, and people ignore it. So it's almost like a blank blanket, like, I'll just give you this insulin. Like, I can't trust you to go off and start resistance training and, you know, get outside and get sunlight and get moving and eat better. So I'm just going to take this because I know that you could do this once a day or, you know, twice a week or whatever it is. But there's just no long term to that. Again, it's not fixing the, the, the cause. It's just fixing the symptoms, which is it's going to keep on occurring. The same thing happens with drinking or smoking, right? You can't drink until a certain age. You can't smoke in certain situations because, once again, like you said, the government can't, we can't be trusted with them. Um, the other thing that I would bring into that 
in terms of taxing is I would tax, I would make sure that each cigarette is taxed enough to pay for the remedy of that person when they get cancer. I would tax fast food chains enough so that the fast food, the, the amount of tax that comes from that can remedy the heart disease and the strokes that are resultant from that. Same with chocolate and things like that. Um, and then I would change the subsidization. So rather than, um, for example, rather than uh, meat and uh, dairy being subsidized, I've moved that subsidization to halt to plants and vegetables, just because I think that a lot of people complain that they want to, they want to eat healthier, but they see how expensive it is. And although I don't, I think that expense is placed on the calorie rather than the nutrition. So they're viewing calories as being expensive with whole foods, not nutrition. I do understand what they're saying. So, yeah. And sadly, Elliot, your, your uh, premiership will make Liz Truss's look like a million years with, with those sorts of policies. And that's the, but that's the sad thing, isn't it? With, you know, the Jamie Oliver situation of him going into schools and parents passing fish and chips through the school gates. You know, I I remember growing up with that and thinking, and then I think it was nothing. And then now looking back and thinking, yeah, it must be that's one of the saddest sights. This this is so. I, I love reading philosophy and theology, right? And when you look at the oldest religious and philosophical books, thousands of years old, they are exploring the issue that we have as human beings, which is that we are observant of everything we are aware of ourselves and our environment but at the same time we have these deep primitive urges to consume for, for lust to acquire to cheat our greed all of these things are in balance with the fact that we can also observe ourselves doing it and that's where you get a lot of the uh, the original prophets and the theolo theologians and the, the, the philosophers who are inquiring, how do we balance this? How do we actualize? How do we become fully human when we are the first primates to be so observant of how destructive our behavior is? Do we justify our destruction or do we try and come up with a utopia or a more utopian way of dealing with it? But you see that even when there are movements to try and control or enlighten ourselves or to try and dampen the effects of our primitive behavior primitivity even comes into those systems so it's a real that is our that is our uh, dichotomy that is our trial that are our trials and tribulations as human beings how do we balance the two and it's either going to make us or it's going to break us so we'll see what happens on that note <laughs> <laughs> what, a great, what, a, what, a, what a finale, Elliot! I can't wait. For episode, what of episode two? Wait, Oppenheimer. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, mate. Yeah, you've left us with a real belter there. Uh, it's been my pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about you, how how do they go about that, mate? You can find me um, on Instagram at Elliot John Reed, double L double T J O H N R E I D. You can contact the clinic at www.revitalizeclinic.co.uk. That's revitalized spelled with a Z-E. Um, and you can book a free consultation with me if you like. But I really like talking. I really like deep discussions. So, you know, if any point in time you wanted to reach out to, uh, if say, if there's other individuals who have podcasts or who like to do Instagram live streams or just want to have a little bit of a chat, then just drop me a message on Instagram anytime. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. Thank you for your time.
My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did and you'd like to help support it, please share it with others. And if you didn't, please feel free to send it to someone you don't like. Until next time, 